Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello, welcome to Vulnerability Matters. I'm Chris Fitch from the Money Vice Trust. Today we're talking about the Financial Conduct Authority. Having first aired their regulatory ambitions for firms on the 23rd of February 2015, the FCA nailed the final word in their vulnerability guidance on the 23rd of February 2021. Condensed into 57 pages, organised across four major theme chapters, and now a part of supervision from this point forward, the FCA's expectations for firms are clear. Understand and meet relevant customer need. Ensure all staff have the skills and capabilities to do this. Take action across the whole organisation and not just the front line, including product design, improving communications, enhancing customer service and in the wider systems that support staff. And ensure that data monitoring and evaluation are all in place to establish the ultimate objective, whether the outcomes of vulnerable customers are as good as other consumers. But while the FCA's ink has now dried, the conversation about the guidance has really started to flow. So today we're asking, have firms got what they need? Will vulnerable customers get the outcomes the FCA expect? And will the FCA's promised evaluation in 2023 be as much of a judgment on the strategic decisions the regulator has made on vulnerability as it is of the actions that firms have taken in response? Joining us to mull the headlines, footnotes and challenges laid down by the guidance, we have Sarah McKenzie, Head of Consumer Strategy and Policy at the FCA, Mike Songer, Group Customer Vulnerability Director at Lloyd's, Fiona Turner, Head of Financial Inclusion, Capability and Vulnerability at UK Finance, Tim Hawley, Head of Customer Vulnerability at Capital One, and finally, completing our quintet, Ian Phillips, who co-leads our Vulnerability Academy and has just joined Equifax UK in Risk and Compliance. And of course, we also have our live audience already getting their questions in using the chat box. So let's get started with a quick fire round. Let's look at the headlines from the guidance. Ian, you're first. Ian, in 30 seconds, tell me what really caught your eye in the guidance. More more a diagram than a headline, Chris. So I think um, it's quite unusual, I think, for the FCA to go through two consultations before final guidance. But it's been a really useful exercise to get everybody's views um, and the, the diagram that shows at the start, which calls out six areas and the key outcomes that firms should be looking for under those areas, I think is a great place to start any firm strategy. So it's, it's visuals that really impacted you there. It gives you the schema and the overview. Absolutely. I'm always better with pictures and words. You know that. <laughs> Tim, so 30 seconds. What, what, what caught your eye in the guidance? Thanks, Chris, and morning, everyone. So the one thing that definitely stood out for me was really the clarity that the guidance gave about how firms need to meet their expectations under the Equality Act. So while it wasn't a surprise, I think it's a welcome addition uh, to help us all align to that. Fantastic. And we'll come back to that later. Fiona, always hard to pin you down to 30 seconds, but what caught your eye? Morning, everyone. Um, so for me, it was the widening of the vulnerability drivers table um, to include sort of more emerging societal issues such as modern slavery, human rights, care leavers um, and poor numeracy. OK, drivers there. 
And finally, kind of Mike, what were your what's your takeaways? Yeah, morning, Chris. Morning, everyone. Um, so, um, well, first thing um, that jumped out was was really pleasing, which was that there were no real surprises, um, and that it really did feel like um, the consultation process had been really authentic and valid. But in terms of the themes that really caught my eye, it's this balance between vulnerability being everybody's job, whether you're on the front line or in the initial stages of designing a process or a product, it really felt like there was a clarity about what everybody would need to do uh, working at the firm. Fantastic. Now, Sarah, that, that sounds like a glowing scorecard uh, for, for the FCA there. We'll, we'll dig deeper. I'm sure there's some things which, which are challenging as well. We've heard about the visual impact of the diagram, that schema which is a real central part of the guidance showing kind of firms what to think about. We've heard about the Equality Act in there, the expansion of the drivers, and, and the fact that it's been consistent in its, its evolution. A huge amount of work went into the guidance. So let, what, what are you most pleased with? Tell us about that work and what you're most pleased with in terms of the content. Well, morning, Chris. Morning, everyone. And thanks for the great introduction and synopsis of, of the guidance there. Um, I mean, you, you've told me not to be political in my answers here, but one of the things I think I'm most proud about is that this is the product of a genuinely collaborative bit of work. Um, so we've really tried to bring to life what we're looking for when we talk about the high level principles, um, particularly treating customers fairly. And we, we know that that's not easy. So that's really involved us working very closely with colleagues, both across the FCA, but also with firms and the third sector. Uh, and so what's in the content of the final guidance really comes from some of that good practice that we've seen. Um, and many of those listening today are going to have played an important part in that conversation. Um, but I think perhaps more importantly, firms haven't waited for us to finish our consultations. And in many cases, they're already getting on with this. They're already thinking about it. It's designed to be a really practical framework to work through how to drive positive change for um, for outcomes for vulnerable people. And we're really keen now to see that energy and momentum carried across the market so that um, really fair outcomes for vulnerable customers are embedded throughout firms' businesses. And, and and the guidance is is, is somewhat of a, an explanatory bridge. It, it, it's 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 trying to explain and tease out um, what firms might do in relation to the underlying uh, principles, uh, business principles at the FCA. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So it's, I think um, somebody mentioned earlier the the description of the the diagram and the use of that as a as a practical framework to really really think things through i mean it doesn't avoid the need for firms to really apply it apply judgment and really think about how it works for them um, but I think that that explanation of it as a bridge is, is a really good way of thinking about it. We've tried to be as condensed and, and focused as we can, but it's, it's still quite a lengthy document. But again, we've tried to make it engaging um, and readable and really kind of enrich it with all of those examples that I've just mentioned. So staying with you, Sarah, let's look at the first major section of the, uh, the, the guidance together. And that's on understanding consumer need. Now, the FCA want firms to understand and meet the needs of their, their customers. But what does this mean for the FCA and, and just what is a relevant need? So at risk of being a kind of slippery regulator, I am probably going to say that what's relevant is going to vary and it's going to very much depend on the types of products or services that the firm's offering and on their target market. I know this is something you've talked about a lot, Chris, over the years, is that firms really need to be thinking in the context of their firm what harm or disadvantages their customers may be vulnerable to. Um, and because we know that vulnerable circumstances mean that customers are more likely 
to have additional or, or different needs, which if firms don't factor those in and respond to them, um, could really uh, limit their ability uh, to make effective decisions or, or represent their interests and could result in, in avoidable harm. So we try to include in the in the guidance examples of the types of issues that could be made worse um, as a result of that vulnerability. So whether that's behavioural biases, which impact on decision making, or more practical problems, uh, act difficulties accessing services or, or managing products. But really, it's all about firms thinking about their real customers in, in their full kind of uh, richness um, and factoring that in at all stages of the product and service design process, really putting yourselves in the, in the customer's shoes and, and thinking about that as you review your, your customers' journeys and make sure that you're really thinking about their, their needs from the start. Um, we think if that, if that works well, then that should reduce the need for individual interventions um, further down the track by, by individual members of staff. And we've seen that firms are making real progress on this, but there is still more to do. We're still seeing examples, unfortunately, where that, that's not happening and that needs aren't being considered. Um, so, yeah, that's, that, that's the next stage, if you like. So it's, about know, it's about knowing your vulnerable customer. We've got fair treatment in the title of the guidance, but it's very much about knowing your vulnerable customer. So I'm going to bring in uh, Mike Songer here from, from Lloyd's. Uh, Sarah is a... Uh, uh, said there that she's giving you the regulator's answer, relevant need uh, to be defined by, by firms. Um, so Lloyd's have approximately 25 million customers. So how do you practically, practically go about establishing who is vulnerable, what they're vulnerable to, and what their relevant needs are? Okay, so, I mean, it's, it's true. We do have a, a very significant customer base. And I suppose uh, what that means is um, that our base is a, is a very good kind of proxy for the vulnerability that exists in the population as a whole. So we don't have to spend any time, Chris, thinking about what types of vulnerability might be in our base. We know that they will all exist in our base and at quite quite a great degree of scale. So if we think about who who are we talking about, um, clearly there are, you know, there are two sources of that, that understanding. You know, at the most basic level, there is what customers have told you, what they have disclosed, what we've enabled them to disclose. Um, um, but then there is what, what we're able to infer um, about our customers um, from, their, from their transactional behavior and the data that we have. Um, and so um, at the bank, at Lloyd's, we, you know, we, we obviously have uh, significant customer records of what they've disclosed already. Um, but we have set out to create a series of uh, data flags um, that might tell us uh, about a vulnerability from our customers. You know, you know, dozens of different flags that might tell us about different types of vulnerability. Uh, and so that gives us that sense of, of how many and, and who. In terms of what they're vulnerable to, I think one of the most pleasing um, outcomes of the final guidance is that we have become clearer and clearer as we've iterated through that what they are vulnerable to are these seven harms that Sarah talked about there you know I won't list them all again but actually in understanding those those types of harm we can be we can begin to understand the part that we play as a bank um, in in solving preventing those harms or at least mitigating those harms um, and then educating our, um, our colleagues to understand that that's the part we play. We don't set out to prevent vulnerability. We're set out to prevent the harm. That's, that's really important for us within our, in our strategy. Mm. But then in terms of what do we do about that? So what? What are their needs? Um, 
it, it's about, I think, deciding if, if we recognize what they're vulnerable to, we can start deciding what we have to do about that. And so for us, it's about building groups of different treatment approaches that might be about additional flexibility or about additional safety or about ease of access uh, or about actually creating some upskilling for customers to help them interact with their products and services. Or it might be about specialist support. So that's, um, that's a long answer to a short question, but I do think that that point that you made about what are they vulnerable to is the unlocking piece of, the, of this strategy because that you can then figure out how to solve. Well, it's, it's, it's a big question, Mike. So we'll, we'll let you off there. Ian Phillips, I'm going to bring you in here. You, you co-lead the Vulnerability Academy. And I just wonder what your thoughts here were, Ian, on um, understanding our customer base, understanding our target market. And Mike's kind of outlined some of the ways Lloyd's have approached this and said, well, many of the things in the wider population are necessary can be present in a large customer base like Lloyd's. Are, are there other ways of thinking about this as well? Yeah, so so I think um, uh, Michael scowled if I say he's made it sound easy, maybe, because it's, it's anything but. But I, but I guess with a customer base the size of Lloyd's and the fact that it does largely represent the population, as, as Mike says, they don't necessarily need to, to analyze the specific vulnerabilities. But for other firms who have a, a customer base or target market, and, and let's remember the two things aren't necessarily the same. Customer base is what you've got now and the target market are the customers you're aiming for. And it may be that the product or service you offer appeals to a section of the population which doesn't look like the average. Uh, and so in that sense, I think it's really important for firms before they jump into their vulnerability journey to understand the vulnerabilities they're most likely to come across and design their treatment strategies around that. Otherwise, you could have the best treatment strategy in the world for a vulnerability or a harm that you're very rarely going to come across. And I think that comes out in the guidance pretty clearly that the FCA does expect firms to understand both their customer base and target market and that their strategy isn't just a lift and drop of the FCA's guidance. It's built around those vulnerable customers and the harms that they're exposed to. That's great. Thanks. Fiona, you, you've been listening there. You've, you've heard Sarah and Mike and Ian. Let, let's hone in on this relevant need. I mean, how far will UK Finance uh, be recommending their members go in meeting such vulnerable customer needs? I mean, what is beyond the care or duty of, of a firm? I think there's a couple of things here and Sarah's already touched that you know each firm is going to need to have its own approach to this um, so in terms of you know what can we do at industry level well you know I'm privileged to work with some really passionate individuals through the vulnerability committee and our role there is to look at how we drive and sustain those you know improved consumer outcomes and the consistency across what is 280 members and they've all got very different uh, firm models target markets etc so what does that mean in practice for us I think well we need to focus um, at, at more macro level on that consumer harm and that consumer need and identify areas where we can have the greatest impact um, so for us that 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 is something um, that you know we need to identify the collective effort piece um, and if I look at the pandemic you know what firms achieved in the pandemic was incredible given the operational challenges they faced um, and we were very focused on 
what is the need what is the potential harm that could come out as a result of this pandemic and what do we need to do about it and that led to you know 17 million customers being offered additional support 2 million inquiries being answered through specialist teams 10,000 carers cards being issued and you know 7 million pounds being um delivered directly to people's homes now those support mechanisms weren't there before the pandemic but the need was there um as it as it started and firms very quickly worked together to identify those solutions and put them in place which was fantastic so i think going forward um my role really is to help make sure that we don't lose the momentum and focus that we've that we've achieved over the last you know few years and, and more importantly over the last 12 months um, and that's going to mean you know providing constructive challenge mm. um, also making sure we've got clear priorities um, and that means focusing on a few things and doing them well and then setting and then mm. finally maintaining an open channel with Sarah's team particularly around the insight that they're seeing from supervisory work early doors so that we can learn from it and continue to make sure our plan's dynamic. Mm, that's, that's that's really helpful. T Tim Hawley, uh, if I can bring you in here and then Sarah, I'm, I'm going to go back, back to you. Tim, we've heard from uh, Mike and Ian and Fiona about looking at need and really trying to kind of uh, boil, boil it down to kind of uh, what we can do that's, uh, that's relevant to our, our business model. How have you approached this at Capital One? So when it comes to need, I mean, we've talked previously on this podcast about like vulnerability you can think is synonymous with risk management. And so clearly all good risk management looks at impact likelihood and the mitigations that you've got in place. And so not only do you have to understand what it means within your target market, you also have to understand actually what's the significance of that vulnerability and how it might manifest itself. Um, at Capital One, what we've done is we took what originally, like a lot of people did, was start at 68 conditions and we boiled those down into 10 common harms and then five ways that we can mitigate. And that's part of our inclusive design approach. What that's really enabled us to do is to get to the point of understanding the few things that we have to protect for rather than the many things that could easily make it confusing to worry about in an organisation. That's really helpful. So you've gone from thinking uh, about risk groups and about conditions, which is a completely um, sort of valid way of approaching this, and then thought about those common harms, those behaviours that Mike was mentioning earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and we've made that available uh, so that people can kind of see the process that we went through, um, not because we see it as the only answer, but hopefully that just helps shed some light for others on an approach that might be relevant within their own firm. Lovely. And you can hear Tim talking at the Vulnerability Academy uh, coming up very soon about that. S Sarah, one of the things here around um, the response of a firm uh, is, is its relation to the size of that firm. And uh, I think proportionality, I don't know if the word proportionality is in the guidance, Sarah, but what, if we're a smaller firm, what's expected of us compared to a, a much larger organisation or outfit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we do try to take a proportionate approach, Chris, in, in all that we do. And, and we would expect, I mean, well, ultimately, I think that's why we're, we're focusing on, on the principles and the outcomes, because we do recognise that there are a, a great diversity of, of businesses, firms, sectors and sizes out there for whom this is going to be relevant. 
So really looking for them to, to, to take, a, to take a look at some of those quite accessible tools, whether that's the, the diagram we've already talked about. Um, we've also produced a, a short form version of the, of the guidance on our website, which, which firms can, can print off and just read very quickly. There's also a video version. We're trying to make um, the key messages that, that of what we're looking for really as, as clear as possible. Um, and in many ways, I think for, for a smaller firm, some of these these processes that uh, the the larger firms are, are having to work through are actually frankly a, a bit more straightforward um so we have the same expectations but we expect they may go through a, a slightly different journey mm. reflecting the, the size and, and their customer base we'll, we'll come on to supervision and enforcement a, a little bit later on just to, to take a few quick comments from um uh, our audience um Lloyd has um, brought up this uh, these seven harms that are mentioned. I think there's seven examples of harms, aren't they, Sarah, in, in, in the guidance. Could you just say just a little bit more about them and what they are? So, yeah, I mean, there are, yeah, examples of harms, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I don't have the list uh, in front of me, but I think the um, the idea is that these are really to bring give examples of the sorts of things that that, that customers who might have characteristics of vulnerability, um, the, the kind of things that, that we're talking about. Um, so whether that's stress levels being heightened, um, being more preoccupied, perhaps as a result of um, other things occupying their, their mind, um, things like changed attitudes towards risk. Um, we've talked about behavioral biases, um, things like a scarcity mindset, making it more difficult for customers to make decisions. Um, lots of the sorts of things which we would recognize um, that, that people uh, in vulnerable situations might experience, but also the more practical things around um, difficulties accessing services, um, being perhaps more uh, at risk of over indebtedness or, or scams and financial abuse. There's quite a long list of, of, of potential areas there. Some of them are going to be more relevant depending on um, absolutely the size of the firm, the sorts of services you're offering, some of those points that um, I think Mike touched on earlier. And just to keep you there, so uh, James has um, uh, raised, I'm going to paraphrase this, James. Um, James has raised the question about how the guidance um, sits alongside other activity from the FCA. James has mentioned kind of um, a payment holiday allocation. But I wondered, how does this fit into a suite of FCA um, products? Yeah, so it's a really good question. We've, we've taken a slightly different approach in a way here with the vulnerability guidance. We've, we've made policy um, which is cross-cutting in nature and which really looks at the world from the customer's perspective and starts with, with the, the consumer and the consumer needs. And as a result, it really just cut through lots of different sectors and areas of our work. Um, so where we're talking about this really, you know, it now being time to embed this, this guidance, that absolutely equally applies within the FCA. So we have to make sure that the kind of expectations that we're setting um, in, in the guidance that we've published are also consistently applied throughout our policy making. So that might be in a particular sector, so something like um, credit, forbearance, which we've, we've touched on, um, but also, you know, it, things like uh, banking services, um, even things like funeral plans, which we've, we've mm. issued a consultation on this week. In all of these sorts of relevant topics where vulnerability is a dimension, the sorts of expectations um, and interpretation of the principles that you're seeing in the guidance also needs to flow through in our policy making. 
but also in our other areas of business. So things like the expectations that we set at the authorizations gateway, um, yeah, when, when we're thinking about projects and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it very much needs to needs to be woven through wherever it's relevant, really. And and, and commercial uh, banks uh, and business uh, businesses who may be vulnerable. Um, how far does the guidance go on this? It's for unincorporated uh, firms, um, as I understand, small businesses. Um, how would the principles be applied to those that are incorporated or on a commercial banking footing? So it applies to natural persons, which is a bit of a legal term, but there we're really meaning applying to individuals and business or businesses or perhaps charities where they're not legal entities. Um, in relation to incorporated businesses, what we've said is because these cases, it, the relationship is not with a natural person, but with the, the, the corporation running the business. So that's the, the, that's the firm's customer in that situation. However, we have said that because the principles do apply to incorporated businesses and they still need to make sure that they're treating these businesses fairly, they may, may still find the guidance helpful. So, for example, um, if you're dealing with an individual who's who's representing the firm and, and perhaps there may be a question there about that individual's vulnerable circumstances. Fantastic. I'm going to move us on this. There's plenty of uh, questions coming in, but I want us to look at the one of the, the second major theme, perhaps, of the guidance, which is around skills and capability, both for the front line, but also beyond the front line. So Tim Hawley, going to bring you back in and then I'll, I'll go to Ian afterwards. Um, in, in the FCA guidance, it says that staff should take steps to encourage disclosure where they see clear indicators of vulnerability, but they're not expected to go further than this to proactively identify vulnerability. So what do you think this is getting at, Tim? And how do you think firms will interpret this? Yeah, so it's a clear signal, right? It's not an interrogation. Right? It's not asking for our agents on the front line or firms to force a customer to disclose. So it's about three things for me. Firstly, creating a supportive disclosure environment in the channels in which you operate. So it should invite, enable and encourage those that choose to disclose to do so. Secondly, it's about identifying triggers that provide an appropriate point to ask the question and invite that disclosure. You know, so it might be something as simple as I can see that you're struggling to hear me. Is there any way I can help? Right. So it's just providing the opportunity to ask those really important questions. And then thirdly, it's that not all support requires disclosure. So how can organizations bake in layers of protection without the requirement for someone to declare that they need support? And as we were talking about before, that's the work that you know we've been doing on those inclusion principles. And I think it's clearly laid out on the inclusive design approach and final guidance. And, and finally, you say, like, how should firms interpret this? I'd, I'll pull it right back to the simple part, which is there are people in need. How do we best connect those people to the support that they really are after? And ideally, how do we do that in a way where they don't need to tell us at all? Mm. It's, there is a worry, isn't there? Um, and I'm hearing this worry um, from some commentators that the uh, not going further to proactively identify vulnerability could lead to a situation where firms simply wait for disclosure. But you're saying that's not the case or shouldn't be the case. 
No, it shouldn't be a case of that you don't get any support unless you tell us. It should be that we will provide as much support as possible without you needing to tell us. But should you choose to do so, there may be additional things that we can help in your specific circumstances. And so what I'd like to see is more a conversation about how do we create those great disclosure environments? And what we aren't trying to do is think that it's our role to force people to tell us. Mm -hmm. Ian uh, Phillips, you're, you're listening in there. Um, staying proactive, as I know you always like to do. In the draft FCA guidance, GC23, there was a section on the use of proactive data analysis to identify customer vulnerability. Um, and it said firms weren't obliged to do this, but could find uh, analytics or machine learning elsewhere um, helpful. So to what extent does the final guidance uh, carry the same message around uh, data analysis? And do you have any reflections on what Tim was saying as well? So um, uh, so it carries the same message, I think, um, if I've read it rightly. I think the key is in how firms interpret that. And, and I think there's a bigger question here, which is, do we view the guidance as a tick list and have an expectation that provided we do everything the guidance says that we'll be fine, and if we don't do something it says we won't be? I think we've already heard from Sarah that it's about proportionality and, and it's about what is right for that firm and its customers. So I think um, whilst it might not uh, obligate firms to do this analysis, um, this guidance is just about how to apply the FCA's principles for business in the context of vulnerability and, and I guess some helpful thoughts from the FCA in terms of what they think that looks like. So if you look at principle six and the expectation that we pay due regard to a customer's circumstances, uh, I think there is an expectation there that if something in a customer's data tells you that they might need help, there might be um, at least a, an expectation, if not a responsibility, that you might flag it up. And sometimes customers don't know that you're prepared to help or they might not know that um, they might not even themselves have spotted that they are becoming vulnerable. So it's not a question, as Tim says, of forcing people with their arm up behind their back to accept a treatment strategy, but being in a position where you can spot some of these things, and to Mike's point before, not just what they're vulnerable with, but what the harm is that they might suffer, that, that feels like good practice and something we should be aiming for. If we look at the bigger picture and you look at some of the other things that have come out this year, things like the Woolard Review, things like the Financial Live Survey, there was an announcement yesterday from UK Finance about some principles for, for open banking best practice. We're moving into a world of data even more than we ever have been before. And so mm -hmm. I think if firms fall into the trap of solely focusing on what happens through a traditional conversation between a customer and an agent, then, then we'll probably miss a big trick. My, my final observation on this as well is that let's remember that um, this doesn't come without a cost. And mm. I think we've seen this through financial difficulty, which is it's one of the first areas where vulnerability focused perhaps, that it's expensive to help somebody out of debt. It's less expensive to help them not get into debt in the first place. And, and I think that could be true for some other vulnerabilities as well. So whilst there might be an overhead in introducing some of this data analytics capability, there may well be a longer term cost saving for firms in terms of not having such expensive treatments to solve a problem that they've managed to avoid in the first place. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, Mike Songer, um, uh, just uh, thinking about the, uh, the proactive use of uh, data, Mike, 
um, and some of the work that Lloyd's have recently not only done, but published around gambling and account transaction data. How do you think this fits into the uh, into the picture? Well, look, yes, we, yeah, we have we have done that. And I think um, it maybe it's an illustration of the different ways in which firms can proactively use their data to understand um, the real nature of harm. So for anyone that's not familiar, what, what we did at Lloyd's is um, we, we, we used a, a, a large scale, anonymized, aggregated set of data based on um, customers who were engaging with gambling organizations. And it helped us understand the extent of uh, gambling activity, but also it started to help us understand the rate at which harm might materialize for, for some customers. Um, based on different patterns of uh, gambling spend. And so, and we've, and we've collaborated with uh, Warwick University in order to produce what hopefully is quite an informative piece on, on the nature of gambling harm. Um, um, and that will inform policy making in, in that space. To link it here, I, th I think it just pulls out that point that um, uh, the data firms have is, is incredibly powerful. Um, in, in the understand phase, but also in terms of um, informing the types of solutions that we might decide to bring forward at scale. Because Chris, this is, not, this is not about us hunting for everyone that we think might be a problem gambler and then putting a solution under their nose. This is about understanding as a firm uh, the type of response that we might want to bring now that we understand the scale of it. Hopefully that, that answers your question. No, that that's really really helpful. And 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 Sarah, gonna gonna bring you in here. Uh, one of the things that we we've been seeing uh, recently is uh, increased publication by firms of toolkits and guidance. So, for example, Capital One, and you can get this from the Money Advice Trust website where where it's hosted, um, published an inclusive design toolkit and workshop guidance. We've seen Barclays publish uh, research around data on vulnerability and consumer attitudes that data being used to identify vulnerability and we've got mike's work there at lloyd's with warwick university on gambling is this something sarah that we should be uh, encouraging is this something the regulator could encourage in terms of collaboration across organizations but also getting organizations to open up some of the market research the research and the insights that they're they're gathering on vulnerability yeah, thanks, Chris. I mean, it's really interesting and, and obviously really relevant for us because we've also got a role in, in sharing insights. And, and some, somebody mentioned the Financial Lives report, which we issued recently. Um, and we, we take very seriously the kind of the need to understand um, what's going on in terms of consumers' lives, some of those points that we've just been talking about around um, actual and, and needs and, and harms that, that that might arise. So I definitely think there's the space for for, for sharing. Um, and actually, it's a good example of uh, where the sorts of conversations that are happening across the across the market, I think, really do uh, you know su support su support the kind of overall response to, to vulnerability. So mm. yeah, definitely a really positive space I think for for sharing and learning from each other. Okay, Sarah, stay stay with us. Keep keep unmuted. We're going to talk about enforcement and supervision now. Many years ago, I, I used to teach research methods to medical students, and the first question at the start of every lecture, the hands would go up. The first question uh, wasn't kind of about coursework. Um, it was, is this actually in the exam? 
Now, I have a feeling when it comes to regulatory guidance, the equivalent question for firms is, how will this be supervised and for consumer groups, and how will it be enforced? So, Sarah, how will the guidance be supervised and enforced? Yeah, it's a great question and one that's been increasingly on people's minds as we've gone through this this policy making process, I think. Um, I mean, the short answer is that, yeah, we will be monitoring firms and, and we'll be monitoring um, this using the guidance um, as part of our supervisory work. Um, I mean, our general supervision and enforcement approach isn't going to change as a consequence of this. Um, so what, what firms can expect is that for larger firms, conversations about vulnerability will absolutely be happening as part of their regular supervisory conversations. Um, but for those smaller firms who perhaps aren't, aren't fortunate enough to have their own uh, dedicated supervisory contact, they can also expect that, that vulnerability will be featured in and uh, reviewed as part of projects or priorities uh, where vulnerability is relevant. So we will we will be saying to firms, um, what are you doing to ensure that, that you're taking the additional care that we expect with vulnerable customers and really kind of asking how they're able to demonstrate how their business model, cultures, policies, etc., really are resulting in, in fair treatment and, and making sure that those those, treat, those outcomes for vulnerable people aren't worse than, than everybody else. Um, and if they can't do that, then our usual supervisory processes would kick in. Um, and we can and we do hold firms to account if they breach our principles. Um, and it's, it's new guidance, but it is, as I've mentioned already, on the existing mm. principles. And we'd be taking a, a sensible, proportionate approach. Uh, but we do want to see firms taking steps to monitor what outcomes their, their vulnerable customers are having and, and taking steps where perhaps they, they identify that they could be doing better. You, do, will there be an, uh, a ratchet mechanism? Will you be looking for increasingly um, detailed evidence as we move from sort of the launch of the guidance towards that 2023 uh, evaluation point where the FCA are going to take stock in terms of what firms provide to supervisors? Um, some firms might say, OK, we, this is the final word from the FCA now. We know what we need to do, but we need to get some things in place, whereas others might already have that in place. Are, are you going to be taking that approach? Frankly, we, we do already expect firms to, to treat their customers fairly. And, you know, it's been a kind of a longstanding kind of expectation that firms will be able to, to demonstrate that they're doing that. Um, equally, I think just the conversation today and some of the examples that we've been talking about, about the research that, that firms are doing and um, the changing picture of, of vulnerability in response to the pandemic does mean that, you know, people are going to continue to um, to learn and develop their approach. And I think that, that that's reasonable. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think that the, the kind of thinking and development um, and good practice on vulnerability is going to stop here. I think that's going to to keep evolving. And, and that's absolutely the, the conversation that firms can have when the supervisors come and ask them about where they're up to on, on that journey. Uh, but yes, an existing requirement that, that, that firms need to, to treat their customers fairly. So if this was a switchboard, it would have lit up Sarah, as now we're talking about enforcement and supervision. So um, Ke Kevin Still and Christelle Hutchins, just going to take a couple of comments from them. Um, how will the guidance or will the guidance be more closely aligned with the senior managers uh, regime? What, what's the link between the two? So I don't I don't think it, it changes anything. It's it's guidance on on the existing uh, requirements. And Christelle uh, Hutchins comment is um, this is about where firms are dual regulated and about collaboration between uh, sort of regulatory bodies. Uh, Christelle mentions kind of Ofcom has issued guidance on fair treatment of vulnerable uh, consumers, but it defines vulnerability and sees it quite 
differently in Crystal's uh, opinion. How, how do we how does that work, Sarah, in terms of uh, dual regulation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite a, a busy space, isn't it? Lots of lots of regulators thinking about um how to how to approach vulnerability and, and setting standards. I mean, I, I think in general, we do try to make sure that we are joining up and having conversations with fellow regulators in this space. And that includes with the um, the UK Regulators Network, where we, we are regular attendees um, and try and make sure that we're being as consistent as, as we can, really, in terms of the approaches that we're, we're taking. Um, because I think that's that's important, both from a kind of consistency and, and efficiency point of view, but also just to learn from each other. Um, mm. That said, I do think regimes are different and customer situations are different. And um, what, a, what a kind of vulnerable customer and their needs in, in say, the energy sector is is probably not necessarily the same as, as some of the situations which we might see as, as um, of concern from a financial services perspective. So joining up wherever we can, but recognising that there is a lot going on in this space. Lots of comments coming in about data protection, which I, which I won't go into in too much detail here just for time purposes. There is a Money Advice Trust, the Money Advice Liaison Group guidance, and there's also the expanded uh, appendix in the uh, in the FCA guidance as well. Fiona, I'm going to turn to you now and just ask, uh, um, how concerned are UK Finance about how the Financial Ombudsman Service will use the guidance in their complaint handling process? After all, despite its emphasis on outcomes, the guidance could be seen as providing a set of minimum standards, couldn't it? Yeah, it's a good question, Chris. So, I mean, I think Sarah's team have done a great job in terms of providing us with a pragmatic framework um, that provides clarity, um, but it is outcomes based. Um, and what's going to be really important is that we've all got a clear understanding of what good looks like and that there's crystal, you know, crystal clear alignment between the main um, stakeholders. And by that, I mean the FCA, FOS, firms and customers, really. Um, so, you know, time will tell. Um, but as I say, as it stands right now, I think members do have um, a couple of key, key concern areas. Um, firstly, is that piece around clarity and consistency. So, I said a minute ago, we all need to know what good looks like. What, what, you know, what are we aiming for? Where's, where's the, the, you know, the, the bar set? Um, and there's three assessment points really <laughs> that will determine whether we're getting it right. So one is FCA supervisory activity. Secondly, we've got customer complaints, um, and they'll have their view. And the third one is FOS complaints. Um, and, and we need that clear understanding and then it needs to be consistently applied across individuals say at the fca or at fos and also across those organizational boundaries so that's, that's the first point the second point i think is um our approach to vulnerability has grown organically and evolved over time so what firms are doing five years ago will look quite different to what firms are doing now and that's you know illustrated very well by the pandemic where our responses were developed at pace to the harms that we were seeing um you know we are all on a journey in this you know the fca are fos will be and and we are too um and we need to keep talking to make sure that the standards that we've got today are not applied retrospectively and that the standards that we've got with the guidance are not applied retrospectively because that 
that could be um, quite challenging for firms. And then finally, the last point I'd like to make is about precedent settings. So FOS has got the ability to take into account legislation, regulation, codes, best practice, etc., and make decisions. But those decisions can have quite wide ranging ramifications and they can set a precedent, which then all firms need to uh, consider because of the requirement under DISP for, for firms to learn from FOS mistakes. So I think there's kind of, as I've set out, there are three areas where you kind of, it's a watch this space piece and we need to work on this together. Um, it'd be a real shame if the good work that Sarah's team have put in is undermined in the implementation phase. Mm. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We all want to make sure customers are treated fairly. Okay, I've got Ian Phillips waving his hand at me virtually, and then I'll ask Sarah to come in with a comment. Ian? Yeah, I just wanted to pull some bits of that together and, and maybe I think perhaps say some things that I think Sarah might have wanted to say. <laughs> I didn't feel she, would, she was allowed to. I think the really important thing is that we don't view February 2021 as day zero for vulnerability. Um, you know, as has been said on this call quite a lot, the principles for business and the SMCR regime, that's the senior managers regime that you were asked about just now, already have expectations in them about paying due regard to customer circumstances and treating them fairly. Um, it, this is the third iteration of the guidance. And even before that, we had UK finance principles and, and various other things, um, which have all um, raised expectations about the treatment of vulnerable customers and making sure we're not treating all customers as average. And we're understanding that they have different needs and firms have responsibilities towards them. We've heard from Mike and, and Tim that their firms and a lot of others have already been doing a lot of work in this space. And I'm sure Sarah won't mind me saying that the guidance in, a, in a, a lot of ways is a collation of all the good things that have been going on in the industry. So it's not as though she and her team have been sat in a room and have concocted this by themselves. There are a lot of examples in the guidance about you know, how firms are doing this already. So I think, you know, Fiona's absolutely right. We don't want to, you know, retrospectively apply this. We need to recognise that firms are on an evolutionary journey. Um, but I just wanted to make the point, I think, that anybody who thinks this starts now uh, has probably already missed the boat. Great. Sarah, do you want to come in there? Has Ian put words in your mouth or said something that you couldn't say? Ah, oh, yeah, well, I think that was a really uh, great articulation. And I like that it's not day zero for vulnerability, because I think that's that's spot on. I mean, I guess specifically on, on the ombudsman, which is it's a question that's, that's cropped up as as we've gone through this this dialogue, um, which, is, as Ian says, is something that's it's not been dreamt up in a lab. It's really the, the guidance is the product of quite extensive conversations. Um, but the ombudsman do already take account of, of, of our rules and our guidance and if it's appropriate they're going to good industry practice that's already out there when they're thinking about what's what's fair in, in the circumstances of the cases that they're thinking about and that's already happening um, when they're thinking about fair treatment of customers including vulnerable customers so, so that hasn't really changed as a consequence um, of the guidance um, so yeah I mean I think it, there's no doubt though that um, all of that good the good stuff that, that Ian's just articulated is meaning that the, um, the, the approach is it will continue to, to improve, which is which I think is great. Mike Songer at Lloyd's, I'm going to turn to you now. And 
if we're going to evaluate firms' actions and outcomes, does this mean we need a, a common vulnerability data set that every firm should record? The FCA seems to be saying that they won't dictate what metrics or management information that firms do record, but how else could this be achieved? Okay, well, look, the, sh the, the short answer is uh, no. I, d I, don't, I don't think we need uh, a common data set or a common uh, MI approach. I, I, think, I think that would undermine the kind of spirit of the guidance that talks about firms needing to determine for themselves what what are the vulnerabilities that they are solving for and how are they how are they facing into them i think what needs what needs to happen in common um, is that uh, the purpose uh, of the um, of the data the mi uh, is used in a in a consistent way in other words uh, to understand whether or not we are being successful in preventing um, harm materializing for vulnerable customers what we are learning from it and how we're adapting in flight i think that's that's what needs to apply across uh, firms but and i think actually there are there are some uh, within the guidance uh, there's a really good a set of examples of, of the types of mi we might choose to to bring forward and maybe maybe I could land land, land this kind of plea to, to Sarah here is that I think I think that's a, that that type of example um, is really helpful. But my ask my ask would be actually for all of us is that you keep that dynamic because you're going to be engaged with multiple firms um, ongoing and you're going to see examples of what's really driving good practice. And I'd like to think that you might be able to publish periodically other examples. Um, of where you're seeing uh, MI and evaluation material really um, making a difference for customers rather than just being something that we, we look at in committee. Okay, I'll let Sarah come in in just a second on that, Mike, but Tim Tim Hawley, you, you wanted to mention something. Yeah, yeah I, I just want to say I think there is a place where we should seek some commonality here. And as Mike says, it's not just for the MI, it's not around MI, but for me, it's about if we start with this is all about providing appropriate protection for consumers, then we've got to consider the problem from the consumer forward. And what that really means is most of us will have a range of financial service providers that we invite into our lives. And when the need arises for support, it arises all at the same time across all of those firms. And so while we're talking about data, for me, it's about how do we ensure that the point of need, we provide a consistent and effortless service across firms and if that's through a common data set or like heaven forbid one that we might be able to share then i think that's a good area for us to consider mm -hmm. it's good so there's a lot of discussion so mike's talking about determining what matters uh, to an individual business and uh defining the metrics in, in that regard tim picking up there on the fact that actually um, if we are going to share, and there's a lot of talk about sharing uh, data, there's a UKRN report very recently, then, you know, we're going to have to share the same data. And, and Sarah, if you're going to evaluate in 2023 the actions that firms have taken and the outcomes achieved for customers, wouldn't a, a comparable set of data collected by firms help with that? Yeah, so it's quite interesting um, on this whole question about data, and it's something that we are focused on very much as as a regulator, and in terms of our kind of regulatory data strategy. So it's a really it's a really good question. I mean, I, I do think that on the point about that, responding to I guess Mike's comments about whether there is a sort of 
place for a common data set. Uh, I probably tend to agree that I think it is going to vary and firms are going to be thinking for themselves about what, what they think they need to, to, to know and collect in terms of their own data to understand um, what's going on um, in their firm. But generally speaking, the whole area of developing um, ideas and expertise on, on this space does feel like one where different firms and sectors may really benefit from having some of those non-competitive space conversations with their peers, with their, their trade bodies or, or through networks like, mm. I guess, the Vulnerability Academy and uh, and similar arrangements. So, I mean, I'm kind of probably, partly because I'm exhausted with publishing documents, um, <laughs> try and resist the, the, the idea that I'm going to publish some more documents on, on this. A, a signal there is not only um, uh, the, the work that the FCA put in, but a role for firms to to begin working either individually or, or together to provide these examples of good practice. I've got to get these uh, this 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 section in. We've had quite a lot of questions on this. I'm going to start with Tim, but then I'll open it up to whoever on the panel would like to come in next. Tim, one thing that was turned up a little bit in terms of volume in the final FCA guidance uh, was the need for firms that offer self-service digital channels uh, with no direct customer interaction to identify vulnerability, encourage disclosure, understand needs and offer support. In short, digital needs to do vulnerability just like any other channel. Was this your reading too, or is it always gonna be the case that digital channels need a bit more leeway just to their nature? Yeah, so I interpreted it slightly differently, in, in which case, like I see consumers will have channel preferences and that choice should not result in outcomes that are worse than other channels. But I also want to differentiate between kind of digital and self-serve. I can be in a digital channel, but still have a human interaction, right? Today's podcast is a brilliant example of that. What is important is that consumers can complete the interaction in a way that supports them. And that could mean I fully self-serve, could stay in the same channel, but access support through a text email, which is with a human. Um, I could I mean I switch to another channel such as phone or letter. Good service design should allow for that. And what I take from the guidance paper is it's about not causing harm through inappropriate levels of care. And just to be really specific, where needs are clear and common, then I can see building those into self-serve would be entirely aligned. For example, if I've got a visual impairment and I need to request all correspondence to me to be sent in Braille, this for me would be very similar to the self-serve preference management most of us will get when we're asked about marketing communication preferences. But mm. as opposed to, say, a really difficult situation when someone's in hospital for an extended stay due to an accident, that might require a conversation to understand their situation, what Absolutely. options are available to firms. And that could be done through a mix of digital, non-digital, direct or indirect channels. So I know I didn't probably like answer it in one way, but I just say it's so variable, but it mm. does allow for either ends of that spectrum. Fantastic. Uh, Fiona Turner, 10 seconds, please. You come in quickly. Yeah, just picking up on the piece around channel choice, um, I think we also need to be mindful of indirect consequences. So to give a quick example, contactless is being consulted on uh, a change to the contactless limit to £100 that could have an indirect consequence on the use of cash, um, both of which the channels for getting that, um, notes which have got braille dots on and ATMs which are talking, um, are more accessible than Thank contactless you. just now. Thank you, Fiona, for being so brief. Sadly, that's all we have time for. I'm sorry if your question wasn't raised, um, 
thank you very much for participating. Starting on the 18th of March, you can join our Vulnerability Academy. Visit ukfinance.org slash vulnerability for more on the program of 10 half-day workshops covering every major FCA expectation and leading practitioner talks and insights, including the people you heard here. And until the next time, thank you to Sarah McKenzie, Fiona Turner, Mike Songer, Tim Hawley, Ian Phillips, and of course, your good selves for listening. Thank you.